So Money Episode 543, Beth Kobliner, author of Make Your Kid a Money Genius. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. To so money, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. You know, a lot of you write in to ask Farnoosh on Fridays asking about how to set your kids up for their financial futures or how to best teach them about money. I'm right there with you. Evan's almost three, and I do have him hand the cashier the money when we check out at the grocery store. I'm hoping that maybe he's understanding that in order for us to go home with this new stuff we need to give something back in exchange. And that money ultimately is currency. We'll see. Time will tell. It's just one little thing. And of course, kids learn a lot from modeling. So just trying to get myself conscious to this sooner than later. And today's guest, Beth Kobliner, is very passionate about kids and money. She's a leading personal finance authority whose first book, Get a Financial Life, Personal Finance in Your 20s and 30s. You've probably read it or seen it on the shelves. It was a New York Times bestseller and for years and still was the money Bible that you gave to all your friends, your kids, your grandkids graduating from college. Now, years later, Beth is out with a new book called Make Your Kid a Money Genius, even if you're not. And in it, she shares practical advice for teaching toddlers to young adults on how to be smart with their money. A little bit more about Beth. In 2010, she was elected by Obama to be a member of the President's Advisory Council on Financial Capability. And there she created moneyasyougrow.org, a resource to help kids develop some money skills. Beth has some really fresh and relevant advice to share on the show about how to raise money-conscious children and why bribing your kids to do well in school or do their chores with money is a wasted effort. Really? All right. Here's Beth Kobliner. Beth Kobliner, welcome to So Money. I can't believe it's taking me for so long to lure you on the show, but now you have a great new book out. So lots to talk about. Thank (laughs) you. Well, I'm a huge fan of yours, as you know, so I'm so excited to be here. Oh, well, congratulations on your second book. Just came out, Make Your Kid a Money Genius. Many of us love and know you from your first book, Get a Financial Life, Personal Finance in Your 20s and 30s, which for many of us was the financial Bible, you know, the personal financial Bible. It's been out 20 years. Can you believe it? (laughs) It's crazy. I can't believe that it was 20 years ago. And you know, I'm, I meet people sometimes now who are in their late 50s, even early 60s and said, oh, I read your book when I, you know, was young. And I, it's, it's sort of kind of fantastical to me. That was 20 years ago. But yeah, this new one, Make Your Kid a Money Genius, even if you're not, um, is a parent's guide for kids, whether they're three up till age 23, to teach your kid about money. And it's kind of fun to think about maybe some of the Get a Financial Life readers have kids and they're starting these conversations and or have kids in college and they're sort of trying to, you know, firm up these conversations to make sure their kids are on their way to having, you know, 
sounds financialized. And the book really covers much of childhood, starting from preschool on to high school as the issues change. And uh, I know right now I have a preschooler, so Ah, (laughs) and one on the way, another on the way. So I'm very much at the beginning of parenting, but still obviously facing a lot of not only just expenses, but you know, thinking as I do is because I am, because of what I do, I I have probably more of a consciousness around, you know, teaching Evan, who's only two and a half, but still how, what money means. And when we go shopping, what happens when we want something? How do we get, how do we, how do we get the permission to actually take it home? (laughs) Exactly. Well, Evan is at the perfect age. So you can do, you know, you can even do like an experiment with him and then do something else with your other, your new, no, no, I'm just kidding. But I feel like by the ripe age of, you know, three research shows Um, There's this great researcher out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison who showed that by age three, children are able to grasp economic ideas like value, things have value, and then exchange, you know, we give money to buy things we want. And those are things we can really start talking about with children at an early age. And the other one, of course, is delayed gratification. We have to wait for things. We have to wait for our turn at the swings, and we have to wait for our birthday. And we also have to wait and save our money for things we want. And those lessons, I think, are so powerful and really can have an impact on how children view money and um, the rewards of saving it rather than spending it on, you know, something that maybe they don't want as much. As you were researching this topic, and I'm sure you pour through other books and mm-hmm. other material studies, yeah. what was something that you really wanted to add to the conversation that you felt just wasn't being discussed? Right. I think one topic, um, this notion of delayed gratification, and you know, everybody talks about this marshmallow experiment, you know, the one where, you know, they give kids, they yes. put one marshmallow in front of little kids, and then they say, okay, if you can wait, for you know, a certain amount of time, we'll give you another marshmallow. But most kids just usually gobble it up right away. <laughs> and that waiting, that ability to wait and save has an impact on, if you're able to wait as a child, you do better on your SAT scores and you have lower body mass, in a body mass index as you get older and you are happier at your job. And there are a lot of positive attributes that they've been able to track since they started these studies in the 70s and now have tracked it for all these years. So I think the notion of the importance for every age group, whether you have small children or, you know, teenage kids or kids in college or just coming out of college, the ability to wait and save has such an important impact, particularly as it relates to credit card debt. You know, most people I find still don't understand that a credit card is a loan and that the notion that you're borrowing money that you don't have and you're paying very high interest rates to buy something ending up and costing the thing you're buying maybe ending up costing you twice as much since you add in all the interest you'd have on a credit card. So I think that link between delayed gratification and credit card debt, and there have been studies now that are showing that people who, who are very good who are very good on self-control basically have the ability to save more money. And it kind of sounds obvious, but 
we're really realizing how much that kind of trait is so important throughout your life, particularly when it comes to money. It goes back to behavioral economics. But what about the kids who aren't hardwired to be to have more self-control. And I think, right. you know, I mean, some kids are just, we're just born sometimes exactly better at it than others. How do you teach it and keep your patience as a, as a parent? <laughs> and it's true. And the truth is we wouldn't want every child to be so perfect in weight. You know, I feel like there is a sense now that everybody's running out buying bags of marshmallows and testing their kids. <laughs> and, you know, it's all over marshmallow the internet. Marshmallow sales and, have surged. Yeah. And I think... You know, we're knowing more and more that as a parent, some of the things you do really impact your kid's ability to wait. So number one is being consistent. If you start an allowance system, make sure to keep it up regularly. You don't have to start an allowance. And that was something I felt was important to debunk because I know every parent I've ever met is guilty about starting allowance and never finishing it. So you don't have to study show. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. But the most important takeaway is to be consistent. You know, one study did the uh, uh, most recent marshmallow redo found that when then the tester, the one who said, I'll be back with the marshmallow, when they were consistent, when they really came back with the marshmallow, when you tell your kids something, you know, you're going to have to pay for this with your own money, but then you cave in a few weeks later because you feel bad. That's not a good lesson, and that's inconsistency, and it's sort of teaching your kids really the opposite of what you want them to learn. So being consistent and as a parent is really important. Um, other things I thought were fascinating were just the ability to distract yourself. So when you go into a store, we've all had it happen, you go into a store and you have your child with you and they want candy or they want a certain cereal and they're begging and begging and begging you, good before you even walk into the store to inoculate your child. Say, basically say, not literally inoculate them, but say to them, you know what, we're going to go into the store and there are going to be a lot of things that we want to buy, but today we're just running in to buy diapers or running in just to buy milk or, you know, talking about what you're doing and then getting out of there quickly. Because I think a lot of parents are so busy and if you're with a child in the store and they say, I want, you know, that little tiny toy or, and if it's only a couple of bucks, you think, why not? Let me just, you know, get it for them and they'll be happy. But that experience of every time you go into the store, you buy something is a hard one to break if you're used to that. And I find that starting that early and explaining to children, we don't always buy every time we go into a store, that kind of um, uh, education with a young child, Evan's age, really, I think, makes a difference long term. And I've also heard, too, that coming to the store with your list, which is good all the time. Exactly. And showing exactly. your child, this is these are the two, three items we need. Let's go find them and kind of making it a game could be a good exactly. distraction. That's a wonderful idea. And also as much as possible, as we know, making it automatic because everyone has their foibles and you can sort of have the best intentions, but it's difficult sometimes. So if you're um, a little older and you have your first job, of course, setting up automatic withdrawal into 401k or a savings plan. And, you know, even being consistent with your child as a parent saying, you know what, the minute I get my paycheck, I have some of it go directly into my bank account. And some of it I use to buy, you know, when we have pizza night at home or just talking about the fact that not, you know, we don't just rely on willpower, but we kind of build into our routine sort of 
what we spend money on, you know, Wednesday is ice cream day or whatever it is, but we do it on a regular kind of automatic way that we don't rely only on our self-control to help us. The automatic portion of this you know, personal finance equation for kids is, is interesting right. because on the one hand, so much of our life is automated. We use credit cards. Right. It makes life easy. But when it comes to teaching your kids right. the fact that when you use money, it's a limited supply. It's, you know, is cash better to kind of introduce money to them in the form Absolutely. of cash? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the counterintuitive things I've learned is that cash, you know, using cash is the way to go and give your kids cash that it sounds counterintuitive. You know, why why would you give them cash? They can lose it or, but the fact is when you give a kid plastic, as we know from that famous MIT study, people tend to spend twice as much if they use a plastic card, like a credit card, than they would if they were using cash. And I found with kids, you know, if I sent my daughter to the mall and I gave her a set amount of money, um, she knew if she bought jeans and a sweater and a shirt and it exceeds the amount I give her, she has to put something back. But with a credit card and automatic, you know, cash advances or whatever kicks in, that can sort of make the lesson a lot blurrier. And even just putting the act of paying out, you know, 10, you know, five, $10 bills or whatever it is, really we know is much more painful and to some extent than just playing, paying with a plastic card, which feels like, you know, plastic money. Um, I also think you make a good point because I grew up um, watching my dad have a checkbook and a check ledger and paying the bills. And I saw it. It was just part of, you know, my existence. And we would go to the bank and we had a passbook savings account. And all these things are really just mysteries to children. Even money is a mystery when they see their parents play with plastic, not with cash. And so I think that even though, you know, the toy um, cash registers now come with plastic credit cards and fewer and fewer have actually cash bills in them. So the, the sort of, we're sort of in a way depriving kids of those lessons and not that we all go back to not paying bills online, but I think it's that much um, more important that we talk to kids about what we're doing. Now I'm paying the bills. Look at, you know, we have to pay for the, the cell phone and we have to pay for the lights and we have just those kind of conversations, especially when kids are young, I think are really important to make it concrete. Um, and we also know, of course, that uh, there are studies that show when parents talk to kids about college savings, if they say, you know what, I have money and I'm putting into a savings account for your college, kids are more likely to go to college, really regardless of how mm. much money, whether you're talking $100 <laughs> or 1000 or 10000 So it's really important, I think, to start those lessons early and explain to children what you're doing. Right. Because inherently you're showing what your priorities are. And also very important, you're opening up a path to communication where kids, I think, have a lot of questions. But so many times I've interviewed guests on this show and while their financial lives today might be great, they do say sometimes that as kids, it was not a topic of conversation in the home. And and so they struggled with money in their early years as they were adults because they had this kind of, um, you know, closeted 
emotional perspective on money that was very much tied to how it was presented to them as a kid. And so absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, you know, it's interesting because I feel like everybody has money baggage. I've met people who are not good with money, you know, in their twenties, thirties, forties. And they say, Oh, my parents are really bad with money. So I never really talked about it. Then I met up, meet other people who are really bad with money. And they said, I'm bad with money because my parents were so good with it. And they were such tight wads and they were so frugal that I'm, I sort of started rebelling and I wanted to live life to its fullest. So I see like, it's interesting. I've seen both ways, but I think you're absolutely right that those conversations, you know, very basic things when kids are in elementary school, you know, we have to make choices. We have this much money and we have to make a choice. Are we going to go on a family, you know, trip to Florida or are we going to redo the, you know, basement and make it, uh, you know, add something fun for the kids, um, ping pong table or that kind of thing. Or older kids, um, comparison shopping, which I have to say, I think, you know, middle schoolers are so good at that because they're so good at, you know, looking on the internet. And uh, I like the, the, the example of, you know, someone I know who found, um, I think it was like, a, you know, um, TV that they wanted. And then they had their kid research it on the internet for them and find other places where they can get a better discount. And they gave the kid a percentage of the difference, you know, that the parents saved. But I think all those kind of lessons and talking about it really offers not even just a helpful way, but also something to talk about. You know, sometimes kids are, you know, especially in those middle school years, you'll see, but they'll say, ah, you know, how was your day? Oh, it's fine. And they don't really have, they don't want to engage. But I find middle schoolers in particular are very interested in the topic of money, just as an abstract concept. Um, and they want to think about, well, how can I start earning some money? Or how can I, you know, get a higher interest rate? I remember when I told my son about compound interest, and he was really little, he got very excited, and he wanted to figure out how he can get a higher interest rate. So I <laughs> think that those conversations really spur on interest. As we move up the adolescent ladder here, we talked about young kids, you talked about middle schoolers. I think also in the middle ages, middle childhood, parents sometimes right misuse money as a tool for reward. Mm, and you talk about yeah. this in your book. I would love for you to talk about this a little bit with us because I think it's something that a lot of our parents did when we were little. Some of us are still doing it as parents today, using, yeah. for example, money to give to your kids when they get good grades or when they do the right. chores. What's the backlash? It's really interesting because I was actually surprised to hear that most parents say they – bribe their kids or give their kids money for good grades. They say to kids, you know, if you get an A in this course, uh, we're going to give you 50 bucks or whatever it is. And the research shows, there's this great researcher at Harvard, Roland Fryer, who did a large randomized control study and showed that bribing your kids for A's for grades is a waste of time and a waste of money. It, it just doesn't work. Um, and if you're, you're hoping that will incentivize your kid. First off, chances are it won't. What it could do, and I'm not saying this is a great idea, but if you say, I'm going to give you some certain reward for doing your homework regularly or doing a particular specific task, then it could have some impact. But overall, 
you want the impetus for working hard, for getting good grades, for learning that grit that everyone talks about and tenacity and hard work because it comes from themselves. And middle school years are challenging. I have to absolutely say that, you know, it can be very tricky, but bribing your kids doesn't work and it's not a good idea. Along the same wavelength, what what's your take on encouraging your children to get a job when they're ready and able? Because I know right. school is so busy and they have a lot of work on, they have a lot of workload, homework, et cetera, activities, yeah. but there is value to, as a young person learning that when you put forth an effort and you are employed and you work mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, um, I know because people on the show have said like, why am I an entrepreneur today? Because I started to really appreciate the value of work and making money from working at a young, at a young age. Right. Well, that's a wonderful question. And in my book, I have a whole chapter on work. I mean, when I thought about it, how that lesson that basically hard work pays off and the importance for working hard throughout your life. But I mean, research does show that um, basically you don't want your kids to work more than 15 hours a week during school. And that would be including weekends. Um, because more than that, kids' grades really start to suffer. Um, and I do believe that working um, in high school is certainly something that could have a big payoff. But I also feel like given the, the um, complexities and the difficulties and the challenges of school these days, and you know, when you look at homework loads, somehow the research seems to say that homework isn't that much more than we got as kid. it, kids. It feels like a lot more as a, from a parent's perspective, I think. And I think telling your kid schoolwork is first, um, I think is very important for children to know that clearly. Um, because I think that there, there might be a tendency, especially if you're in high school. I mean, obviously, some families, if the child needs to work to help support the family, and I know in my parents, my, my dad, who was born in 1929 during the Depression, he had to work when he was like 10 years old to help support his family. But I feel like um, having a high school job for extra spending money is definitely an appealing idea. And it really can teach those life lessons. I mean, I had three jobs when I was in high school. However, I also think that for a young person, the idea of having spending money and even making more money um, and having maybe a boss at a store who'll say, yeah, work 20 hours, work 25 hours, you're a great worker. It can really push the balance and make your child's have that much of a harder time to do well in school, which really in the end, you know, how well you do in school, how well, and that depends on how much you're studying and whether you're having time to finish your homework. So I think it definitely is a balance, but I really am, if at all possible, in favor of stressing getting your schoolwork done and making that a priority. What is your personal financial philosophy, Beth? We've talked a lot about your book, which I encourage everyone to go out and buy for your own children or your friend's children. But for you, I mean, I feel like I've been following your career, but I don't know a whole lot about your personal background. And I think that would be great for listeners to learn a little bit about, you know, who is Beth Kobliner? (laughs) What? (laughs) Who is Beth Kobliner? Who are you? Yeah, let's put on the, the, you know, that hat and, and... Right. Well, 
I, I think back why I started writing about this in the first place. And I think um, my favorite sort of motto that I take with me from my parents, or one of my favorites, um, is because I had my, both my parents were born in 1929, and they were both educators. Um, my dad was a principal of a middle school in um, uh, Bayside, Queens, New York, and my mom was a chemistry teacher and then later a stay-at-home mom. So they really scrimped and saved on one income for many years back in the 70s. And um, my dad had a story where he was a principal and this New York City introduced a pension plan. And basically they said, you can save half of your income. So my dad's salary at the time was $30,000. And they said, you can put half of that money into retirement plan. That was the first year's plan. And we had, you know, my parents, my mom told me they had three kids at home. I was the youngest. And my dad said, my mom said, that's crazy, Harold, my dad's name. How can we put half of your salary? We have three kids. We have a mortgage. We have a house. We can't afford it. And my dad said, we can't afford not to. And that's sort of the, in our family, the Kobliner lore, a, fav- a favorite story, because my dad, even though he was not at all a financial person and didn't have all that much money, he realized that starting early and saving for the long long term really makes a difference. And the idea of you can't afford not to do it now, whether you can't really afford not to talk to your kids about this, this topic, because I think, you know, as life gets more complicated, you know, the world is getting very complicated. And I think making sure your kids are financially literate really is a lesson that we can't afford not to do. What drew you to this as a career? Was it right. a lot of your childhood? I mean, not everyone starts out in their 20s writing a book about personal finance. <laughs> well, I think it was seeing my parents, and I dedicate the book to my parents in because they taught my brothers and me um, all about money in very, not, not even, they, they certainly talked about it. We were a very open family, and they were always honest. And they always said, you know what, we can't afford that. Um, but when it came time for college, um, I got financial aid, I worked in school, I had loans, and I remember, um, you know, I, uh, my parents said you can either go to, like, a school that they thought was sort of really worth the cost in the sense that, you know, it's a different generation, but they felt it's worth it to scrimp and save to send you into to a school that we really think is great for you, or go to the local school, Queens College. And that was sort of a choice. And when I got into a, a, a good school, they said, okay, we're going to do what we can to help you pay for this. Um, and my dad searched out loans for me and not just the school loans, but other loans. And they were really extremely proactive in showing me, you know, money just doesn't have value, but they valued something like education that we, they sort of saved up for and were able to really piece together at sacrifice to themselves. And they did the same for my brothers as well. And I think seeing how, I'm feeling a little emotional now, but seeing that, you know, their ability to do that, and it came very naturally to them, um, was such a lucky break for me in so many ways. And I think that really taught me um, it, it must have sparked my interest in it because it wasn't like I was, I was certainly not a math genius and I was not a money genius at a young age. And, but I think it just watching 
what the, the, the model they put forth without really, I don't think they were trying, that's just who they were, made me decide this is really interesting and I want to educate people, you know, how to talk, first of all, when they were young and I was in my 20s and my sort of first job was writing for Sylvia Porter, who was like the first woman before anyone, before Susie Orman or everyone, anyone to write about this topic. I think I had that privilege and that was so um, interesting to me to learn that you can talk to people about this and teach people about this and make it clear it's not all that complicated. You just have to pay attention to a few details. And now the lesson of teaching your kids that feels an, the next phase for me because I just see how valuable it was for me as a child to learn this information. And and, and listening to you, I think also you developed a keen sense of financial empathy for not just mm. your own what was going on in your own family, but I think that carried over to you to your to, to your professional life too. Is your mm. you, you have this deep caring for Aww. financial issues, and you know when not everyone would want to listen and want to help people with regards to this particular topic. I think we all have our expertises, but this especially you have a very unique empathy around and we need people like that. You know, we need people to understand and connect and not judge and point fingers. Right. I do think that, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky and I feel like this, I remember graduating from college and I was, I had student loans, which my dad came up with a payment system. I lived at home for a year, which is in get a financial life, having your kids live at home for a year, but setting up specific rules. And in our case, I lived at home. I really basically didn't have huge expenses, but I did pay back my student loans to my dad over that year. Um, And it was $10,000, which in those days was a lot in student loans in the mid eighties. But I think that, I saw a lot of friends graduate with credit card debt, for example, and I knew not to get into credit card debt just in, you know, based, I think, on my parents' lessons. But that was a huge problem, particularly in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. Um, and it's less for millennials today, but it's still, of course, an issue that once you graduate from college, they may not be getting a credit card in college thanks to, you know, uh, the President Obama's um, afford, uh, the not affordable health care, it's the um, credit card, card act, act. Mm-hmm. right, which made it hard for kids to get a credit card before age 21, unless you have a parent co-sign, which I think is not a good idea. And I explain that why in the book. But also, I think it really is just uh, something that I saw and I still see today and explaining why credit card debt, it's so important to pay that off quickly, pay it off more quickly um, than even your student loans. If you have federal loans and the rate is lower and going into all those explanations, I think it's so important. And I think best of all that you can lay the groundwork when your children are younger um, and talk about these concepts, obviously in age appropriate ways. You don't talk to your, you know, three-year-old about 401k, <laughs> but, you, yeah, but you start talking about uh, all these lessons of even in advertising, you go to the supermarket and look at that. You know, there was a great study that found that when you look at, this is Cornell found that when you look at cereals for children, that the cereal box characters, their eyes are angled down to meet the gaze of children, um, the vast majority of them, where a regular cereal for grown-ups is angled up. So they mm-hmm. to look at the grown-ups. So 
kids are such pointing these things out. It's a little creepy, but pointing it out to kids or look at that advertisement. They make that toy look so great, but really, I wonder if it's really great. And starting those conversations early makes them so mindful of what is worth money and what it's better to question and maybe not spend their money on. Yes, I think we'd sometimes underestimate the kids' potential and ability to learn and learn curious and, and, and absorb this information. I think um, that's a real important takeaway, you know. Um, yes, I mean, I bet you, I I would bet that Evan is super smart, and I bet he <laughs> talks about these things. And I, you know, I bet he's watching you and he hears you talk about this. And I think that's a very he's a lucky guy because I think those are the things that they can absorb and having those conversations with little kids, you know, what do you think money is? And well, let's go to the bank and see. I mean, I still remember bringing my son to the bank when he was really young and I called in advance to make sure the, you know, the person at the bank would be nice and not sort of hostile or, you know, had the time to spend with us. And we went into the bank and you know, he, they wrote down, okay, this is your, your number and this is your bank account. He's like, but where's my money? They're taking my money. And we had to sort of talk through a little bit. And even, you know, I simplified when he was really little, but we, I said, see back there, we pointed, you know, that they have, they have a vault and that's where they keep the money. It's going to be safe. And they're going to give you extra money called interest. And that, and that's a very exciting thing in a child's eyes. And just going through that conversation, I think really they get it. They totally get it. And they're very excited to learn more about it, I think. Well, of course, when you're a child, more is more. <laughs> yeah. Less is not more. More is more. Uh, right. Beth Kobliner, right. thank you so much for stopping by. We didn't even get to all the other topics from your book, including you know how to open up a brokerage account for your kid and right. uh, paying for college, even if you're I got a kid who's in high school and you haven't started yet. So much right. sound advice relevant for today's parents. Wishing you um, success with this book as I hope as successful as Get a Financial Life. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure being on. Thanks so much to Beth for joining us on So Money. If you'd like to learn more about her, her website is bethkobliner.com and she's on Twitter at Beth Kobliner. If you missed any of this, head over to somoneypodcast.com where you can download the audio, the transcript, and also leave us a question for the Friday episodes, either via voicemail or just by writing in your question. We love hearing from you. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money. Money.